Now, you've probably noticed, haven't you, that we are living in an increasingly unforgiving culture. Yes, we're very sentimental, but the more time you spend in this culture, the more you're worried about putting a foot out of line. If you just spend a few minutes on social media, you'll discover that. Someone has described being on social media like tiptoeing around an angry parent who's ready to lash out at any moment. Because we live in a society that is so unforgiving, that is constantly looking to trip us up and to put us in the pile of those who are unforgivable. Now, I'm going to reveal my age here. Emma and I, our favourite radio DJ, or one of them, was a guy called Simon Mayo. He's been consigned to the BBC uh, dustbin of history, sadly. But he used to do BBC drive time just as we were driving home from school. And uh, no one has been better than him. And one of the things he used to do uh, just about the time we were going home was people would write in confessions to him. And he would read out these confessions on the radio and then his, he and his team would basically judge whether this person deserved to be forgiven or not. It was amazing. It was a really great slot and often very, very amusing. Now, one of the things I found was that most of the confessions that were written weren't really confessions. They were more kind of boasts. It was like an opportunity for someone to say, look how good a trick I played. So for nine million people listening, I can pretend that I'm sorry for it, but actually I'm pretty proud of myself and everyone else is going to think I'm a top lad for doing this. That was the kind of tone of most of them kind of showing off and that's kind of what I would have done as well if I was writing into it. There was the odd confession though that it, it wasn't awkward, but it almost felt like that. As, as you read through, as you heard the confession, you got a sense that this person was really tied up in knots about the thing that they'd done. They were desperate to be forgiven. They felt this was perhaps their only hope of finding some sort of vindication and hope. You know, some of the confessions had that real edge to them. And as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was thinking all of us exist on that scale, don't we? As we reflect on our lives. Sometimes we think that our past mistakes are just something to laugh off. And kind of something that happened and that's it. But for many of us, there is a sense in which as we look back on our pasts, the mistakes we made haunt us and they follow us and we worry about them and we tie ourselves up in knots because we just wish it hadn't happened. Do you have that feeling about some things in your past? That's certainly temperamentally where... I'm at. I, I agonise over mistakes in the past and I long to turn back the hands of time and to, to redo those events so that I didn't cause that harm or do that damage. And my question for us this afternoon is, how does Christianity help us when we feel like that? What do we do when we are haunted by our past or haunted by a sense of guilt or shame or regret. I hope as we look at this story, we can be liberated from some of those feelings. And as we go through uh, the encounter that Jesus has with these two people, let's just focus on three things. Firstly, notice the two welcomes Jesus receives. Then notice the two debtors that Jesus speaks about. And finally, the two responses to Jesus's teaching. Firstly, notice the two welcomes in verses 36 to 38. 
one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. Two characters with two vastly different welcomes given to Jesus as he enters the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now in those days the Pharisees weren't the pantomime figures that we think of nowadays. You know when we hear Pharisee when we read it we want to boo and hiss and say he's behind you but that's not what's going on in the first century. The Pharisees were upright, well thought of and of good standing in society. Simon is one of the more significant people in the town and he has invited Jesus for a meal with some of the other bigwigs in town. And the impression you get as you read through this is that Simon thinks that Jesus should be overflowing with thanks to him for the privilege of coming into his house. That's Simon. The opposite welcome that Jesus gets is from this woman, a woman whose name we don't even hear. Now, as the Bible is often very understated, Luke says this woman lived a sinful life. It probably means that she was a prostitute and well known as that in the town. She really has no business at this gathering. And as you read through, what you've got to understand is that this event is shocking. As people are sat around the table and this woman comes in, there would have been audible gasps. Who let her in? How did she get through the the crowd to to come here it would almost be like if our current prime minister came into this room you know there would be a bit of an atmosphere wouldn't there teeth clenched and we would be shifting uncomfortably in our seats to see how we would respond to Boris Johnson the anathema you see that that's kind of what's going on contemporary Jewish literature said of prostitutes this a prostitute is regarded as spit And so as she walked into the room, people would have been looking at her and despising her. And they would have been thinking, how on earth is Jesus going to handle this? This shameful woman in our midst. I hope he gets rid of her quickly. And once again, the Bible gives us another reason to love it. Because though Simon was the most significant person in the town or one of them, in this story he fades into the background and this woman becomes significant she as it were takes center stage because that's how God works not with the movers and shakers of this world but instead with those whose hearts he has won so as this woman comes in and the crowd expect Jesus to dismiss her he opens his arms to her and celebrates her and welcomes her in. And the welcome this woman gave was, was more than just, hi Jesus, nice to meet you. Did you notice that? She is overcome with emotion. The fact that she can be near to Jesus and can see him is probably the most significant moment in her life. And she is overcome with emotion. I wonder if you've ever experienced that, where you've been so overcome that you just can't help but weep and kind of lay everything bare as you show everyone how you're feeling. 
Emma and I got married nine years ago. Uh, when we got married, one of us was stoic, whilst the other was a blubbering wreck. And uh, I don't think I need to give any prizes for you to guess who was who in that scenario. But you see, as this woman comes to Jesus, her encounter with him is so overwhelming for her. This is no mere formality. She just wants to show him that she loves him because he has first loved her. And I wonder how you'd have felt if you were there. She comes and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and she pours really expensive perfume, which we'll come to later, on his feet. Probably most of us in here would have felt a bit uncomfortable, wouldn't we? You see, we live now in a society where everything is for sale and everything can be earned. And so when, we're in, when we encounter over-the-top devotion, it just feels unnecessary. It, it makes us, it just isn't the done thing, is it? We'd have been doing a cost-factor benefit analysis of, of her actions here. In fact, in another story, that's exactly what the disciples did. If we were there, how would we have reacted to that devotion? Would we have seen Jesus as that precious? That there was no act that was over the top for him? Because you see, this woman had encountered Jesus and she didn't care what other people thought. He was worth everything to her. And so it wasn't over the top what she did, even if other people perceived that. As we see these two ways of welcoming Jesus, can I say the woman's response is authentic Christianity. Over the top, extravagant, unashamed devotion towards Jesus. One of the things I love about this story is actually the woman doesn't draw attention to herself. She doesn't even say anything in this story. She doesn't express herself by a loud voice, but by a quiet action. No words come from her lips, and yet her actions speak volumes, don't they? I say this as someone who is quite loud and brash. And particularly in church settings, I find myself falling into that trap. I think I look at this story and think often what the church needs, and as we pray for our needs as a church, what the church needs is less noise and more heartfelt devotion to Jesus. You see, this woman welcomed Jesus because she knew that he had offered her free forgiveness. Whereas the problem was Simon thought that he had to maintain appearances. He thought that he had to impress Jesus. And so as Jesus welcomes this woman in verse 39, the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would not know who's touching him. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. In that moment, Simon reveals himself. He hasn't invited Jesus to his house out of love but rather to test him. He is a critic of Jesus rather than a recipient of Jesus's grace and mercy because here he is standing above Jesus, judging him for his actions rather than like the woman on her knees before Jesus, humbled because she knew that Jesus had what she needed rather than Jesus needed to prove himself. But before we move on, can I say, even here is some good news. 
Because again, where are you on the scale of Simon to this woman? Because the story shows us that Jesus is interested in both. He is interested in Simon and he is interested in this woman. And what I want to say to you this afternoon, wherever you are on that scale, wherever you are in terms of your thinking of Jesus, maybe you've been a Christian for years and years and years. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. And in fact, you feel opposed to Jesus. Even you, can I say, Jesus is interested in you. He wants your heart. He wants you to know him. No matter who you are or what barriers you put up, Jesus wants to know you. Now, that might actually make us feel uncomfortable. You notice it in this interaction. Verse 39 says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. And then verse 40 says, Jesus answered him. Imagine Simon thinking to himself and then suddenly Jesus enters the conversation going on in his head. Have you had those moments in life where someone said something and you're like, well, that that's weird. It's like they kind of knew what was going on in my head. Imagine if I'm preaching at the moment and I see someone not paying attention and I just respond to a thought that's going on in their head. Can I say, thankfully, I promise you preachers can't read your minds. There are times at the end of a sermon when we're kind of circling the runway again and again. I, I have a good idea of what's going on in your heads. But most of the time, most of the time we can't read your minds. But Jesus knew exactly what Simon was thinking. And actually in this story, it's so ironic. Because Simon's like, Jesus doesn't even know who this woman is. And Jesus is like, not only do I know who she is, but I know what's going on in your head, Simon. So get a grip. You see, often we can be like Simon, dancing around in pretense, imagining that Jesus doesn't know us through and through. We think that we can pull the wool over his eyes and that we can just keep him at arm's length. And the whole of the New Testament shows us Jesus knows you perfectly. He knows your faults. He knows your failings. But even as Christians, we can seek to keep Jesus at arm's length, can't can't we? So can I ask you this afternoon, what thoughts are you harbouring in your heart? As you throw yourself into church life, what pretenses are you perpetuating? I don't know them, but Jesus knows them. He knows you through and through. And that's why he tells Simon this story. So notice secondly with me, two debtors. Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. Now, cash machine only let me take out 200 pounds today. So that's why I only had that. The other 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. uh, Jesus says, Simon, let me tell you a little story. Two people, both of them owe money. Now, one amount of money was about two months' wages. The other was about two years' wages. The point is not how much it was. It is just that one debt was far more significant than the other debts. Now, as we listen to that, can I ask you this question? Where do you think Simon thought he was in that story? As he he heard that story, where do you think he placed him himself? And what about you? Where do you place yourself? You see, I think as Simon heard that story, immediately he was like, well, of course, the woman is the one who owes 200 denarii, 500 denarii. And I'm the one who owes the little amount. Clearly, I'm the one with a manageable debt. 
You see, throughout the story, what Simon is doing is playing the comparison game. He's saying, I'm not that bad because look at this notorious sinner who's in our midst. I've got nothing to worry about. In fact, my debt is so small with a few nice, neat monthly payments, a few good acts for God. I'll be all right in the end. What about us? Do we fall into the trap of playing the comparison game just to make ourselves feel better? We look at other people and say, well, God can't be that worried about me. Because look at that person. They're so much worse off than me. My debt, well, yeah, there's a bit of a debt, but it's pretty manageable. A few prayer meetings here and there, a few services, a few uh, volunteering for Isaac on the welcome team. I'll be all right. God will, God will have my back. And Jesus says, Simon, there are two debtors here. Does, it doesn't matter who is who. Neither of them can pay it back. Because here's the thing, Jesus knows that when you are confronted with God as he really is, God in whom there is no darkness at all, what you realise is that your life doesn't live up to expectations. It is a sham. Even the good things we do are an extension of selfish hearts. You see, we like to think, we play the comparison game all the time, we like to think that beating someone senseless at a pub is of a different order of magnitude than telling a story at a dinner party about a friend behind their back. Because, well, of course you tell it because it's funny. Even though that story could cause great damage and harm. But you see, both of those things smell the same, don't they? And isn't that the case with so many things in life? However much we try to persuade ourselves otherwise by comparing ourselves with other people, can't you see that our lives are so much leading to the ruin of humanity rather than an innocent seizing of pleasures? And even in our lives, we live not so much on borrowed, but on given breath. Everything we have is a gift from God. And how often do we give him a thought? And Jesus is saying, Simon, there are two debtors and neither of them can pay the debt. There is nothing they can do about it. And in fact, in this story, Simon is the only one who owes a debt. Jesus comes into his house and he doesn't fulfill the obligations of a host. The woman goes above and beyond. There's no debt on her part in this story, only for Simon. But he was so busy playing the comparison game that he forgot to do what what was necessary. And what about us? I'll be all right with God. I'm not as bad as that person. I haven't really committed that many sins. My debt sheet isn't that significant. No one can pay it. No one can pay it. But I want to take you back to the question I asked at the beginning. If that was simply the case, wouldn't that crush us? Wouldn't we be here this afternoon thinking, well, thanks for that cheery thought. Not only do I have to leave this cool room and go out into the blazing heat, but I go just feeling full of guilt. But Jesus tells this story not to say you're a sinner and wallow in it. But to say all of us are in the same boat and that boat is a boat where God offers us full and free 
forgiveness. Because Jesus ends the story not by saying they both owed money and neither of them could pay it back. But the money lender, that is God, came and out of his great love cancelled the debt. Gone. Forgotten. As if that debt never existed. And aren't we awful with ourselves? We just visit again and again the mistakes of the past. And the Christian good news is that God, who knows all things, forgets our sins. So the God who knows all things, when we stand before him, will not even remember the the things that we carry around with us and, and drag around with us. Because Jesus is saying, Simon, I'm offering you and this woman full and free forgiveness, no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. Jesus offers you complete forgiveness, a completely clean slate. Corrie ten Boom, who survived the horrors of the Holocaust, said this, when God throws our sins into the deepest sea, he puts up a sign saying, no fishing. Isn't that great? Because we do that, don't we? We, we believe that our sins are forgiven, but we kind of cling on to them. And we, we allow them to drag us down. And it's as if God says, not only have I cast them here, but I'm standing here saying, there's nothing to see. Don't go here. Don't do that. It's gone. It's forgotten. There's no sense in this story of past mistakes haunting us, defining us, following us around, dragging us down, shaping us. There's just a sense of a God full of love. He says it's okay. It's gone. It's forgotten. All our failures and sins, forgiven, forgotten, gone, never to be remembered again. And Jesus is saying, Simon, if only you would see that. Simon, if only you would see that you don't need to cling on to anything. You don't need to prove yourself. God isn't a negotiator where we have to fulfill some obligation to him before he forgives us. No, he just forgives us. What is Christianity? There's lots of ways you could answer that, but it's the empty hand stretched out to God receiving his mercy it's the person who takes the burden of their guilt that they carry around with them to the foot of the cross and leaves it there and walks off in freedom it's the person who doesn't always get it right but who is confident that God is more full of grace than we are of sin and Jesus is saying Simon If only you would see it. If only you would take off the mask and stop pretending. If only you would see that I love you. And it doesn't matter about the mistakes of the past because I have come to save you from your sin. And so he says to Simon, verse 42, now which of them will love him more? And Simon knows. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Surely Jesus was saying to Simon, seeking to challenge him to reconsider his stance before Jesus. To say, surrender, surrender that pride, surrender that sense of having to prove yourself and just relax. Just come to me. 
Because when you do that, then actually what the woman, woman does is natural. It's not forced. You, you just can't help but overflow with love for Jesus. When you realise how much he loves you and let him into your heart. So I guess the question for us is this, are we lukewarm towards Jesus? And the answer to that question or the, the solution to that problem is, is not to try and make ourselves more fiery or more passionate or, or more committed. It is to go back to the truth that my sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And do that as many times as you need to do it. Take every single regret and shame and, and feeling of worthlessness and bring it to Jesus and find in him full and free forgiveness. You see, the story shows us two responses to Jesus. Jesus turned to the woman, verse 44, and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Simon's a real tragedy for us. Because ultimately, I think as you read the story, you, re- you realise he doesn't care about Jesus at all. He just cares about his status. He thought inviting Jesus into his home would make people think more highly of him. And when Jesus failed his test, actually, we see that he failed. Oh, Simon was religious. There's no doubt about that. But he wasn't Christian. Because here's the question. When all is said and done, what tune is your heart singing it's very easy to be very religious and yet to have a heart that is far from God because I think what you see particularly in the life of the Pharisees is that we can use religion basically to keep God at arm's length we kind of say if I fulfill these tick boxes then it's going to look like there's nothing to see here and I can keep God there and I can say well God I've done these things so don't worry about me worry about the prostitute over there And yet the woman gives up on religion and invites Jesus into her heart. Instead of trying to keep Jesus at arm's length, she seeks greater intimacy with him and she receives that. And did you notice what Jesus said? She went over and above. It wasn't just that she did what Simon should have done. She did more than what Simon should have done. So Simon should have given Jesus one kiss. She showered him with kisses. Simon should have given him water to wash his feet. She did it herself with her tears. Simon should have given Jesus some cheap oil. And she gave him her most expensive perfume. She just doesn't care about what people think about her. She just cares about Jesus. And you see, that's what Christianity is. I don't care what other people think about me. All I care about is that I know the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Whereas Simon thought he could earn God's favour, the woman knew that she couldn't. And yet she was the one who received God's favour because she went to Jesus and fell at his feet. So Jesus turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
Because all that Simon could see of this woman was what she used to be, a prostitute. That's all he could see as he, as he looked at her. And often if we think we're righteous, that's all we see when we see other people. And actually it means that when we see God's grace, we're angered by it. Because we think other people don't deserve it. But Jesus is the complete opposite. Yes, he saw what she had been. But he also saw what she could become. Because here's the thing Jesus knew. His holiness wasn't made unclean by her uncleanliness. Her uncleanliness was transformed by his holiness. His holiness was more powerful than her impurity. We don't think that, do we? We think we need to clean ourselves up before we come to Jesus. And Jesus says, come to me with your impurity and let me show you what I can do with it. You see, in the very place, with the very things that she used for impurity, Jesus transformed it. You see, the perfume would have been what she used to make herself smell nice for the best of clients. In some senses, it was the symbol of her sinfulness. And Jesus says, bring that. Bring your brokenness, bring your mess, and look what I can do with it. Look how I can transform you. Gregory the Great, who was a second century theologian, said this. She had once used the ointment for the perfume of her body, what she had with unworthiness applied to herself, she now laudably offered to the Lord. But you see, that's Christianity. God enters this world and he comes to us at our worst. He doesn't brush us aside. He redeems us from within. He says to to you and to me, come to me. And he doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up. He brings us to himself and his purity is what transforms us. He takes our impurities and makes them pure. You see, God takes us at our worst and makes something beautiful out of it. Because no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Jesus' forgiveness is more capable than the worst of sins. And he will never sweep you aside if you come to him. He will always open his arms to you. It's challenging for us as a church. It means that as we meet people who we might perceive their lives are radically out of touch, we need to be patient. We need to be like Jesus, realising that without God, we should expect nothing different from them. We should know that the gospel we believe offers everyone not only forgiveness, but it supplies what is lacking in us and so often in church ministry we want to put the cart before the horse and kind of say you can be here as long as very quickly you clean yourself up but Jesus says no just come and be with me and see what happens see see what happens as he rubs off on people as he changes people's lives so what about that guilt that you carry around with you that I carry around with you Jesus says don't pretend Don't allow those anxieties to weigh you down. Be like this woman. Be so unashamed of what people think of you because you have found life in Jesus. Because you know that he will never turn you away. No matter what the voices around you say, no matter what your own voices say to you, Jesus won't turn you away. He will bring you closer to himself. 
And as, as I said, don't try and build up in yourself some sort of fire and passion. Just remind yourself again and again and again. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And he did it alone so that you don't have to go there. Let me finish with the words of a, a, it's a beautiful hymn. Um, I'll just read them and then I'll pray. Who can cheer the heart like Jesus by his presence all divine? True and tender, pure and precious. Oh, how blessed to call him mine. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me and the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. Love of Christ so freely given. Grace of God beyond degree. Mercy higher than the heaven, deeper than the deepest sea. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. What a wonderful redemption. Never can a mortal know how my sin, though red like crimson, can be whiter than the snow. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. Every need his hand supplying, every good in him I see. On his strength divine relying, he is all in all to me. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me and the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. By the crystal flowing river, with the ransomed I will sing. And forever and forever, praise and glorify the King. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me and the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. Let's pray.